Hey, podcast. On this episode, I talked to Josh Sokol of SimpleRisk.com. We talked about cybersecurity and risk management. Risk management is incredibly powerful inside of cybersecurity. So uh, if you're interested in it, enjoy this one uh, with Josh Sokol. I have a cybersecurity talk for us today. I got Josh Sokol on the line. He's done a lot of amazing things. So we're going to get into your story. Uh, we're going to be taking questions as well. Let's get into your background. So you work over at NI now. You're the information security program manager. And yep. you have a really interesting backstory here. You've created this free open source risk management tool called simplerisk.com. Yep. So, I mean, you've been in the security circuit now for how long? Oh, God. I mean, I, I, I've been in a full-time security role for a decade. Um, I've been working at National Instruments for uh, over almost 13 years. Uh, but I've been doing information security since I was a kid. I mean, I started out as one of those those hackers on you know Prodigy and America Online. Um, so it's been a long time. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so obviously a wealth of knowledge there, um, continuous training and learning that you that you have going on as well. So um, let's let's get into like let's get right into like a, a really hot topic here. Um, you yeah. told me something earlier about WannaCry. Let's just get right into the juicy stuff. So some, <laughs> something is brewing right now, and it's not going to be good. Yeah, right. That, that's right. So, what what are the details? Uh, so, so everybody should remember WannaCry. It was probably a year and a half, maybe two years ago. Um, there was this uh, piece of malware, uh, what we call a worm. Uh, the difference between regular malware and a worm is basically a worm is self-propagating. And WannaCry took advantage of a vulnerability in Microsoft Windows, and that vulnerability allowed uh, whatever that worm was to basically take control of that system. And the way that WannaCry kind of hit us is it started to do encrypting of the hard drive, uh, encrypting of sensitive files, encrypting of all the files on those hard drives, um, and it caused a, a huge problem, not only for individual users, uh, where it would ask you to pay like a, a Bitcoin ransom kind of thing, um, but also for all sorts of organizations. There were governments that were hit by it. Um, there were all large companies, hospitals that got hit by it. Um, what we have now is, is there's a vulnerability that's been out there uh, probably about six months or so now, maybe three to six months, um, it's called BlueKeep. And BlueKeep is the new WannaCry. It's basically a uh, remote code exploitation vulnerability. It has to do with a service that's generally publicly available on Windows systems. And this BlueKeep vulnerability is every bit as bad as WannaCry. Um, we've had a little bit of leeway here uh, over the past few months because nobody had actually developed an exploit uh, for BlueKeep um, no proof of concept, uh, nothing really beyond just a proof of concept. But what happened earlier this week is a company called Rapid7, uh, they have a product called Metasploit uh, that uh, attackers will use, penetration testers will use in order to test systems. They released a exploit for this Bluetooth vulnerability. And basically what that means is that that uh, particular vulnerability is now testable in a very large software package the code has already been written in order to take advantage of it. And now that's out there for the hackers to use. So we're looking at maybe days, maybe hours until somebody actually figures out how do I turn this into a worm uh, to attack, you know, tons and tons of systems that are vulnerable on the internet. Wow. Okay. So I, I got, I got like that much from that. Can you, can you say that again in like a, in like a fifth grade vocabulary? Yeah, yeah. What does so, that mean? So the, the, TLDR on this is if you haven't done it already, 
go to your Windows computer if you're running Windows and run uh, the updates. Go through your Windows updates. The Windows updates will protect you against this particular vulnerability. If you don't do that, um, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> we, we don't really know what's going to happen at this point. We don't, we don't want to know, but we will. We don't want to know. I, we're we're going to start hearing some articles, I would guess, in the next couple weeks about uh, companies who are getting hit by this and and uh, probably similar to WannaCry where we've got disks being encrypted and things like that. Wow. So, Josh, um, getting back into your story, uh, and thank you for the, the juicy details on on the latest. So, uh, so you started this company, Simple Risk, and uh, it's, it was open source. It's free. And, and how many... Uh, and first of all, why did you start that? Let's let's talk about the need there that you saw. Um, yeah. And then, and then give, give me the stats. Like how many businesses are using it and why are they using it? Why are they, why are they going to this open source software? Absolutely. So basically what, what happened was I was in my role running the security team for National Instruments, one of the first things I was asked to do was to start a risk management program, um, which sounds, yeah, I don't know, maybe that sounds easy. Maybe that sounds hard. I did a lot of research. I came across the NIST framework for risk management. I said, this is what I want it to look like. Um, but the reality was the tooling. How do I actually make this happen? And so I started kind of going down that path. Uh, I was using Excel spreadsheets. I was using Microsoft Word documents to kind of track the risk in my environment. Quickly realized that in scale. Um, I ended up uh, moving on to a lowest notes database uh, to track my risk. Um, that was not very dynamic, didn't really work well for me. Uh, and I started looking at this uh, area um, called GRC, Governance, Risk, and Compliance. And I started evaluating some tools in that space. I found a tool that I really liked. I took that tool uh, to my VP at the time and I said, look, you know, you asked me to start a risk management program. This is the tool that I need to do it. It's going to cost us about half a million dollars. And she just looked at me and laughed in my face. She said, Josh, your budget is zero. Go figure it out. And so Simple Risk is really the product of that interaction, um, not to be dismayed, not to, uh, you know, um, just give up. I, I started looking at, okay, well, how do these GRC tools function? Well, how do I make a risk management program that supports this NIST standard um, and gives me the, the tools that I need to do my job? And so, you know, my background, I went to University of Texas, Oakham, uh, for computer science. Um, and I have some uh, development skills, so I put them to use. I started kind of nights and weekends and things like that. I started writing this little program um, that really just let me submit a risk, uh, track all the risks that I had submitted and edit the risk, and I called it Simporus. I gave a talk at the B-Sides conference here in Austin uh, back in March of 2013, um, and it turns out a lot of other people have this problem too. They, they all have the need to do risk management, but uh, ultimately, they didn't have the tooling to do it. They couldn't afford the big GRC suites. And so I released Simporus free, open source to the community. Um, and lo and behold, uh, it kind of blew up from there. We had lots of people come to me and say, hey, um, can you make it send emails? Can you make it integrate with Active Directory? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I guess I can do that. And so you know, I started putting more time, more energy into this thing. Um, and, and it kind of blew up. Um, so now you know, we've got... Uh, I want to say like 25,000 downloads of this software. Um, we've got thousands of organizations that are using it literally around the world. I think we figured out Simpsons is being used on every continent except for Antarctica. We're still waiting for that like outpost out there to need some risk management and, and reach <laughs> out to us. Um, I, I know they exist. Maybe they're on the podcast. Uh, maybe they're on the podcast right now. Hey guys, 
you're in Antarctica, come talk to us. Um, but you know, nice. from, from that point, um, you know, Simpor is free, open source, anybody could download and start using it. And for me, it's really been kind of an altruistic thing. Um, we keep that open source version of Simporis because we figure, you know, there's lots of other people who are in my shoes who have the need to do risk management. They can't afford the big tools. And this at least gives them the ability to get started. And then, you know, on top of that, we have what we call Simporis Extras, which are basically the additional, the plug and play modules that give you those things like emails and Active Directory, things that, to be honest with you, the big companies need. If you're just kind of dipping your toe in the risk management water, the free open source stuff should work just perfectly well for you. Well, well, awesome. Um, and uh, can you help us maybe understand a little bit more of like, like if just in one sentence, like what, like what is the biggest challenge with risk management? Yeah. If you can, if you can I know it's a complicated thing. If you could, <laughs> if you could dumb it down to like the simplest form, like what's the biggest challenge? You know, I, I don't know if there's like a single biggest challenge, but the thing that I find that a lot of our customers uh, struggle with, with respect to risk management, is just how to get started. Um, you know, people, there's, there's lots of documentation out there that they can read and, you know, um, it talks about how the process should work. Um, but the thing that I found that a lot of people struggled with was, you know, this, this idea of how does risk management apply to my organization? What are the risks that apply to us? And how do I take those and put them into a system where I can actually, uh, you know, use it? Maybe that's more than one sentence, or maybe it's a, a run-on sentence, but yeah, I, I think that's the, the gist of it. No, okay, yeah, that's great. That's great. So, um, pivoting a little bit here, talking about uh, vendor management risk. So, managing the risk that vendors bring on. Like you look at all the notorious hacks that have happened. A lot of them, um, without getting into much detail, a lot of them respond from a vendor, right? An HVAC <laughs> vendor or whatever else, right? So, um, so what? Tell me about that, that methodology of like how how you manage the risk that vendors bring. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, your, your HVAC vendor, I think that you're, you're hinting at uh, one company in particular uh, who happened to be a target of an attack, um, pun intended. And you know, basically what happened in that situation was uh, they had a vendor that had access to their HVAC system for maintenance purposes. And that vendor was somebody who they trusted. They gave them remote access into their environment. The attacker didn't compromise uh, that company themselves. They targeted the HVAC vendor. They said, okay, well, if we can get in here, these guys have the access that we need. And then the end result of that was they were able to compromise um, all of their point of sales devices uh, and get access to a very large amount of credit card data um, from all the customers of that company. Um, and so, you know, that's just one example of a place where not properly managing our vendor risk uh, is rife with issues. It, it, it could potentially cause all sorts of other risk in our environment. Um, and so, you know, in my case, uh, and with Simporis, what we've ended up doing is we've started looking at um, how do we how do we take this idea of vendor risk and how do we make it a bigger uh, an easier thing for people to conduct. And the way that we've done this within Symforest is we've created this vendor security evaluation process where people can effectively create questionnaires. Those questionnaires ask questions about the risk involved uh, in doing business with them. And then based on the risk involved, uh, they can actually add that into their Symforest system and track those risks. So the vendor risk basically becomes just another aspect of their overall risk management process. 
Okay, yeah. So would would you say it's pretty fair to say that if you ignore vendor risk management, then you're you're more likely to be targeted? Yeah. I, I would say that's probably a, a, a safe assumption. Yeah. If you're you know, if you assume that all the vendors that you're doing business with are, you know, not a problem that you shouldn't you don't need to look at them or whatever, um, absolutely you, you could end up being a target yourself. Well, hey, thanks for that, man. So um yeah and and definitely something you said that this is like a rising concern right so like people are starting to rise up more and more about this concern yeah absolutely i mean i, I it's i don't know if rise up is how i i would describe it it's more of an awakening right um mm -hmm. people are starting to see you know multiple multiple uh attacks multiple different um, news articles and stories where a company didn't uh, think about these things. They didn't evaluate the vendor security piece of things, um, and they ended up uh, having their data compromised. You know, users uh, had their credit cards stolen, things like that. Um, and so, I, I think that as an industry, as, as a cybersecurity industry, um, vendor risk management has actually become a very hot topic. How do we deal with the, the companies that these people don't work for us? They don't follow our policies. They don't uh, take advantage of our tooling. Um, but how do we ensure that our company is safe despite that fact? No, right. Absolutely. So, um, so business out there that are, you know, looking to venture into simple risk, you said it's the hardest part is starting. People just get overwhelmed by it. Um, and you know, I've seen me personally, like I've seen some of my customers get served, um, as a vendor, they've, they've gotten served. Hey, you need to be NIST compliant by such and such day. And I'll let you explain what NIST is. But yeah. you know they'll they'll get that notice and then they're scrambling trying to figure out what to do. You know how secure are we? And they, they don't have usually they don't even have a baseline of understanding of where they even are today, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and so you know what we ended up doing, I, I I thought about this problem, right? I was trying to figure out how do I how do I make this easier for people? Um, and there's actually an organization out there that's done a really good job of kind of. Um, uh, getting an overall like a, a very quick 20 uh, uh, 20 what they call critical security controls um, that any organization should really have to keep themselves safe and I started looking at that and I was like this is perfect right if if I'm a if I'm a company I'm trying to figure out what are the 20 things that I could do in order to you know get the most bang for my buck in order to secure my organization um, I can use these CIS critical security controls and I can basically take those and apply them to my organization. Um, so what we did in Simplerus is we actually created what I consider to be the easy button here, um, which is we just took those 20 CIS critical security controls, we put them in Simplerus as a questionnaire format, and now anybody can go in, answer yes or no to these 20 questions, and the result of that is here's the risk resulting from that. So you know it's kind of an easy way to give people a way to self-assess and come back with, you know, here's the things that I should be concerned about and then manage them from there. Right, right. So how do you feel about the increase in awareness of cybersecurity, like just as a mass uh, in general, from where from where you started to like where, you know, um, respectfully, let's just say that nobody cared to like now and they're starting to care more, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's awesome, to be honest with you. You know, when I was a, a kid, I had the interest, I had the, the desire, um, but it was really hard to find resources. I remember, you know, uh, digging around on the internet and I came across a, a site called Happy Hacker, 
Um, and I, I was, you know, looking at the things that she had to offer up, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, how to hack windows and how to run DOS commands and things like that. Um, and, it, you know, it definitely inhibited me in terms of a, a career path. There wasn't a career path in cybersecurity way back when. Um, you know, now uh, I actually mentor what's called the Cyber Patriot Team. Um, this is a group of high school students. Uh, all who have interest in cybersecurity. They want to learn how do I defend against these types of attacks. And so, you know, my job as mentor is to basically help these kids to learn um, for Windows Desktop, for Windows Server, for Ubuntu Linux, and for Cisco networking, learn how to create secure systems and networks. Um, it's an amazing opportunity, a cool opportunity for me. Um, but for these kids, I mean, they're looking at, um, you know, being able to learn this stuff in high school, it gives them leg up on the competition, potential jobs in the future. Um, you know, it's huge. The, the future is wide open for, for these kids. So speaking in terms of the future, what, what I mean, besides uh, risk management, which I think that's basically consuming your world, like what, what are you most stoked about? Oh, man. Um, I guess the thing that I'm most stoked about is how artificial intelligence can be applied to our field. Um, you know, I, there's a lot of companies out there that'll tell you that they do AI or that they do machine learning. And when you really dig into the guts of it, that it, it's, you know, they feed a computer a bunch of data and the computer helps them to make decisions. Um, what I'm thinking about is, you know, um, even though it's cybersecurity and you hear about big budgets and things like that, um, most companies don't have tons of money to, to throw at those things. And so if I can, you know, I think about it as like an economy of scale. If I can automate these things, if I can have a computer take actions for me and make decisions for me, um, maybe that's one less person I have to hire. Maybe that's one less school that I have to get, you know, something like that. And so um, for me, the whole idea of artificial intelligence, the ability of a computer to recognize an attack, to handle that attack, maybe even uh, maybe even attack back, right? Um, the idea of all this stuff, um, for me, that's pretty darn cool. Right, right. So tools are going to become much, much, much more smarter, um, probably requiring less people to manage those tools. But then those people can then focus on bigger and more important tasks, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every, every task that I can farm out to a computer to do for me um, is one less thing that I have to do, which leaves me to to focus on bigger and better things for the organization. Yeah. So, um, in that in that realm, um, you know, people say that cybersecurity jobs are um, there's a there's a gap there. There's a skills gap. Do you, do you believe? Do you buy into that? You believe that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, I, not only do I believe it, I, I've read all the articles, right? And they talk about a million people gap. Um, between the the jobs that are out there and the people who can actually fill those jobs, right? And so, you know, they, they talk about that. And then I look at my hiring at, at National Instruments and the positions that I've had open. And, you know, I've had one position that's been open now for about a year. I'm looking for a security architect uh, in a specific part of the world in uh, San Jose, Costa Rica. Um, it's been really hard. It's been really hard to pull in somebody like that. So, you know, the... There is definitely a skills uh, shortage. Um, I'm hopeful that you know organizations like the Cyber Patriots, um, you know some of these other groups, uh, 
we're basically building the next generation of people to, to do these jobs. Um, and if anybody is thinking about career change, it's never too late. Uh, the cybersecurity industry is full of people um, who actually made that leap, um, myself included. I was a system administrator for you know, the first decade plus of my career, um, and I made the leap into cybersecurity because it was something that I was always very passionate about. Um, so if you're a developer, if you're a you know, system administrator, uh, you know, whatever, um, chances are pretty good that there's a role in cybersecurity for you. Yeah, yeah. So where, uh, what are some uh, resources? You mentioned earlier resources. Um, what are some resources you would share with us uh, for people that are looking to get in cybersecurity? And then maybe just more resources in general. You were using some like privacy browser earlier. Um, <laughs> so I, I know you're full of these resources, man. We'd love to, love to share. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the organizations that's always been kind of near and dear to my heart is the OWASP Foundation. It's a 501c3 not-for-profit, um, and their goal is specifically focused around application security. But the cool thing about OWASP is everything that they do, um, they do, uh, they have OWASP chapters that are basically uh, just about every state in the country. I think pretty much every state in the country. Well, um, what, 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 does, what does OWASP stand for? <laughs> Open Web and Application Security Project. Um, but even the, the what does it stand for is, is somewhat up to debate within the foundation. Um, but the, the general like, idea- sounds like, sounds like somebody wanted to spell OWASP for some reason. Yeah, yeah they, have, um, they have chapters around the world. They have projects. Uh, they have conferences. Uh, we're gearing up for what we call LASCOM, the Lone Star Application Security Conference here in Austin. Um, but OWASP is basically an organization that's dedicated to giving people educational resources to train people on application security. And I'm actually at that last town conference. I'm doing a free uh, training on the OWASP top 10, which is a list of the 10 um, riskiest vulnerabilities in web applications. Uh, so lots of good stuff coming out of the OWASP Foundation, even if you're not in Austin. Um, you can get involved with your local chapter. You can learn tons of stuff. There's conferences. In fact, the AppSec, uh, the AppSec DC conference, um, which is their global conference, is going on right now as we speak. Okay, awesome, excellent. Um, well, uh, can, uh, we'll we'll put a link to that if you can put a if you don't mind putting a link to OWASP or, or I can as well. And then Josh, I want to turn the tables a little bit back on the on the audience. We got about 38 people viewing this right now. Thank you so much. Um, can you think of a question that, that you might ask them, just like a, a general question you might ask them maybe regarding cybersecurity in their own personal lives or in their business? Um, a question that I might ask them. Um, so uh, you're putting me on the spot, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you one that I've, I've actually done a couple of interviews for that, that position over the last week. Um, and one question that I ask all of them is, what do you do to ensure the security of yourselves and your family um, outside of work, right? What are the things that you do at home when you're traveling, things like that, to ensure the, that you, you're, yourself and your family are staying secure? Okay, so what, what do you do at home in your personal lives to ensure that you and your family are secure? Um, go ahead and, uh, and, and send in your answers to those questions. We'll shout you guys out here. Um, on the on the stream and uh, tag your profiles as well. Uh, so so while we're waiting for those to come in, Roger Wilkerson, what's up, man? Um, he said he sent in a question here. He said, "Isn't uh, a challenge? It isn't a challenge that most people who are great at security most likely won't pass the proper clearance levels." 
I like that question. <laughs> um, so I, I would say no. Um, most of the the clearance level stuff that we're talking about uh, is when it comes to the federal government. If you're looking for a, a DOD contract, you want to work for the NSA, something like that, they're going to do a pretty deep background check and they're going to look for stuff like that. Um, the interesting thing is even people now who have a criminal record um, for you know computer uh, crimes, um, hacking and things like that, um, the government is still looking at ways to involve them, to, to hire them and things like that. Um, government stuff aside, there's tons of companies that are looking for people like that. Um, you know, they're hiring people to do penetration testing. Well, what better experience in penetration testing than, you know, I've broken into other systems. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there is some bit of, of uh, truth to that, that it could be challenging. Um, you know, if you have a criminal record of having hacked into systems and, you know, somebody's looking at you to defend an organization, eh, maybe there's a disconnect there. But I think that the, the cybersecurity field um, is so broad. There's so many different areas of focus uh, that there's probably a space for you. There's probably some role that you can fill where that's actually considered to be a, an advantage rather than, you know, something that they toss out your resume for. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Um, appreciate that insight. Um, so, I mean, so, so what else, man, uh, cybersecurity professionals, uh, the rumor has it that you guys don't sleep cause you guys are afraid of losing your jobs. So I mean, yeah. what, what, what is it that keeps you guys up at night? Um, the age old know, question. I, to be honest with you, I have slept much better at night ever since I discovered risk management. And I'll tell you why. Um, I, all the time, I, I've talked with uh, tons of security people um, who are like, you know, I, I feel like I have the weight of the world on my shoulders. Uh, you know, I get out there and, you know, um, I, I have all these risks in my environment. I have all these uh, issues. Um, you know, finance decided to purchase a, a tool that's full of risk. And, you know, these guys are not patching their vulnerabilities. Our developers have tons of uh, vulnerabilities that they're building into our application. Yeah, and as a security person, you're, you're looking at all these different things and you're like, oh my God, it's just stacking up, right? And the only way that this, this weight is going to be uh, taken off my shoulders is when that breach finally happens and I lose my job. Well, you know, as the security person, as the risk manager, um, you know, I started looking at this situation. I was like, why should it be my problem if all these things are happening um, when I don't control the budget, I don't control the people, I can't actually make the decision. And so, you know, I, I kind of, I had an epiphany. My job as a security professional was to assess the risk and to convey the risk. It was not to accept the risk. And so, you know, my role and my understanding and how I worked in these situations completely shifted. I started thinking of, okay, I need to go out and I need to find all these issues. I need to talk to people and understand them. Um, you know, I need to make sure that they understand what it is that they're dealing with. I need to make sure the management sees those and they understand it. Uh, and ultimately, they're the ones, management, who controls the purse strings, who has the resources. So they're the ones who probably should sign off on those. And so, you know, kind of circling back to the risk management thing, when you put a risk management process in place, when you actually are able to track all these different risks that you're coming about, and it's not me signing off on those risks, it's the business, it's management, it's the people who actually have the purse strings. You know, they're basically saying either, yes, I accept this thing, 
And if this bad thing happens, I admit I knew about it. Um, I didn't do anything about it. You know, we decided to fund this new project instead of that. That's on them, right? If they make those decisions, if they accept the risk, that's on them. Um, and hopefully that process ends up with them deciding, hey, we can throw some money at this or we can hire some people. Uh, we really want to mitigate this risk. Or maybe, you know, we buy some cybersecurity insurance and so we transfer the risk. Um, but regardless, the whole idea of risk management is to basically make sure that the right people who are accountable for that understand the risks that they're accepting and then they can make that decision as a valid business I really, I really love that one line. I'm going to go back after this and I'm going to pull this out. This is that gold nugget, guys. Um, <clears throat> what you just said like two seconds ago, um, that one line about the, uh, your job is not to accept the risk. Your job is to convey the risk. And if the organization does not have the budget to do what, you, what needs to be done, in your opinion, then that's actually not your fault. I, I, really, I really love that. Could you, could, you yeah. say that, could you say that one line again? Yeah. Um, so as a, as a security practitioner, it is not our job to accept the risk. That's, that's on the business. That's on the people who have the money and the resources. It is our job to assess the risk, to make sure we understand what risks are out there, and to convey the risk, meaning that we make sure the management or those stakeholders are informed of the risk and that they understand the risk that they are accepting. No, I absolutely love that. I love that, man. Um, and then uh, just just uh, to get you guys more involved here, uh, Margaret, uh, thank you for that. She says, we use VPNs. We use very complex passwords. We have our content backed up. Uh, we we change all default passwords, and we monitor our identity deal, and we use MFA, multi-factor authentication, on our accounts. That's excellent, Margaret. Do you, uh, do you also use a password manager? Um, yeah. Anyone out, anyone out there using a password manager, um, go ahead and just type, type, send in a comment. Just type, type P and send that in. I, uh, yeah, if, I think that's awesome. I don't mean to, to interrupt you, Kyle, but yeah. uh, the password manager was one thing when, when I read through what she was saying. I wanted to hit on this. Um, one challenge, one, one thing that I see go wrong a lot, um, especially with people not associated with the company, people in their home lives, uh, is the password management thing. They come up with one password. And that one password they use on everywhere. They use it on Facebook, on Twitter, on their bank account, on their, like, everywhere, right? And the problem that we have is that if you use that same password everywhere and one of those places gets breached, your password is now public. And there's, uh, you can go on the dark web, you can search, there's all sorts of password lists. Um, RockU uh, was uh, one, one particular one that I'm familiar with. Um, where it was basically a site that got breached, and now all those passwords are locked, right? Um, and this has happened over and over and over again. If you use the same password for all of your different accounts, that password is as good as the lowest level of security that that one site has, right? The lowest level of security that any of those sites that use it on has. So one site gets breached, you can, you can just consider them all breached. The password manager thing that you said is critical here. Um, the password manager, I highly, highly recommend. There's one out there called KeePass. Uh, it is free. Um, you can install it on your phone. You can install it on your computer, uh, whatever. Um, I like to sync mine through like a Dropbox type of application so that uh, the password file actually ends up on my phone and on my computer and everything. Can, can, um, you, can, can you say the name again? 
so it's called KeyPass. K E E Pass. K A S S. Yeah. Keypass.com. Dot com. Um, I think it's like KeyPass.info, maybe. Um, it's something different. Um, but I uh, let's, let me just uh, KeyPass. Uh, KeyPass.info. Yeah. Um, but it, it's basically a password management tool. It gives you the ability to kind of create folders for all your different passwords. You can have passwords for work, passwords for websites, passwords for, I don't know, alarm panels, whatever the case may be. Um, and you basically are able to not only store passwords in there, but you can use it to generate secure random passwords. So if I'm going and I'm establishing a new Facebook account, I'm going to go into my key pass and say, I need to create a new one. I'm going to type in that's for Facebook. I'm going to type in the email address that I used to register for. And then I'm going to click the little generate button and that's going to give me a new password. And for me, you know, I'm looking at like 20 character passwords that have uppercase and lowercase and special characters and digits, right? Because I want something that's going to be as secure as possible. The cool thing with a password manager is I never have to remember my password. I only need one password. That's the password to open up that password management vault. And every other password can be as long, as random as I possibly can get it, uh, because I'm never going to have to remember it. All I have to do is copy and paste it when I need it. Uh, quick, quick question, and this is related. I'll tie it back. Um, I, I think I already know the answer. I hope. Um, Android or iPhone? Um, so I'm a I'm an Android guy. I, what? I like to, yeah. Whoa. Um, so I, <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> I, my, heart, I, my heart sank a little bit. Um, so I don't think that you can look at either of those devices as one being more secure or not. Um, typically, when it comes to uh, attackers, they're going to they're going to follow wherever they can get the most people, right? And so if there's the majority of people out there are using iPhones, they're going to target the iPhone. If the majority is using Android, they're going to target the Android. Um, that's probably the reason why we haven't heard of any BlackBerry uh, mobile exploits in the last like decade, right? But the BlackBerry um, is the BlackBerry is banging, man. It's making a comeback. Isn't it? <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But uh, no, um, um, I was going to tie into that. Um, what do you? How do you feel about biometric? Uh, you know, logins like Face ID that was recently exploited, right? So I was going to tie all that in. Yeah, I mean, uh, biometrics is is a great concept, right? Um, when we start talking about authentication, there's three pieces of authentication. There's what you know, that's like a password. Um, that's what you are, that's uh, biometrics. And there's what you have, that's like a MFA key, um, you know, something like on your mobile device, whatever. Um, the biometric piece is interesting uh, because it it is a good way to authenticate a user, right? If I, I, I am the only person, at least in theory, who has my fingerprint. Well, until I like leave my fingerprint on the side of the, the glass and somebody takes that and they're able to use that. You know, I'm the only person who has my face. Well, up until somebody takes a picture of my face and then uses that face and, you know, figures out how to handle the IR stuff like they broke on the, the iPhone a while back. Um, oh, just uh, just sunglasses with a black dot on the pupil. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Exactly. Isn't that isn't that wasn't that how they did it? So you, yeah, uh, well, you know, here's what you do: you 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 find somebody, you, you drug them, make them pass out, <laughs> then you put these glasses on them with uh, the little uh, black tape pupils to make it look like their eyes are open, and then you're in. Yeah, 
It's um, crazy. Yeah, yeah, it is crazy. Here's the crazier thing. With biometrics, you can't change who you are, right? You can't change your face without plastic surgery. can't really change your fingerprints. Um, you can't change your, your retinal scan. Um, and so it's a great way to authorize you. But what happens when that data gets stolen, right? What happens when just like a, a normal password, um, that information now gets breached and now everybody has what my face looks like. Um, everybody has what my fingerprint looks like. Would you say that that same issue kind of translates over to uh, blockchain-based logins? Because like uh, like DigiID, I don't know if you know about that one, but there's one called DigiID from Digibyte, and it's the, their their mission is to like end passwords with like using the blockchain to log into your stuff. What do you, I mean, yeah. that's that's probably too early for either of us to speculate on, but um, I assume that I mean that key can still get stolen just as a password can, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that's the reality of the situation, right, is, is that every individual password authentication mechanism um, is probably rife with some form of, of failure, right? Either the biometric is going to fail because I, you know, I cut off my thumb the other day and now I don't have that anymore to authenticate or, you know, my password got stolen and now that's out there, whatever. Um, I think the way that we make this as good as possible, at least right now, is through multi-factor authentication. Um, we leverage a combination of the two. And this actually makes it way more secure, um, but it also makes it typically easier on the end user, right? Um, where maybe I have a password and I authenticate with that passcode, um, but then I also have something on my phone where I, I uh, get a, 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 like a six-digit pin that I have to enter alongside my password in order to enter the system. You know, those kind of things where you're you're just raising the bar for an attacker to a level where uh, maybe they're not comfortable doing something. You know, maybe it does require knocking somebody out, putting glasses on them, <laughs> you know, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, really, I, I, I've, uh, I've heard this idea of the, they call the, the slowest buffalo effect, right? Um, the idea is that you don't have to be the fastest buffalo out there. You just have to be faster than the slowest buffalo, right? And that's kind of the case with cybersecurity. If you are the slowest buffalo, you are prime target to get hacked. If you're the fastest buffalo, you're spending a whole lot of money and you could still get hacked. So, you know, oftentimes the, the challenge is being somewhere in the middle of the pack. You don't want to be the one spending the most money who gets hacked and now like business is questioning why you spent so much money because you got hacked anyways. You also don't want to be the one who's, you know, the easy target. You kind of want to sit somewhere in the middle. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And that holds true unless you are the king of the buffaloes or the chief. Then you got to be faster than the fast one. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yeah, you, you got to be the leader of the pack. But then everybody's looking at you as the leader of the pack, as the target. You know, who, who was it? Uh, the chase that just got popped? Yeah. Um, you know, and they were spending plenty of money on their cybersecurity program. And then that ties directly in with like, how many CEOs do you know? Do I know that like, oh, I don't want, I don't even have a password on my iPad. Like still to this day, like, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't want a password on here. I don't like it. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it has to translate all the way up um, the totem pole. It has to. Yeah. I, I think it, I think it does start with our personal security. So I think if, as, if more people adopt the personal security, um, then that translates. But then, you know, at the same time, if everybody is this fast buffalo now, 
now it's the cat and mouse game. Now we got to get faster. So there's something something Absolutely. new. Because like yeah. uh, with with even with even with multi-factor uh, MFA, you know, there's vulnerabilities there with like especially with cell phone like cell phone numbers. Like I've worked in the wireless industry um, since 2000 six so there's there's ways that i could take somebody's sim if i wanted to i could take somebody's sim card and replicate it and it's not that yeah. difficult to do so uh, the, the getting somebody's phone number is easy scary. Yeah, yeah the, the sim attacks are super scary um there's a there was an interesting article i read not too long ago about a guy uh, who had a, a ton of bitcoin um and he yeah. uh, was protecting that account using multi-factor authentication he basically was using his phone as the second factor of authentication through SMS, uh, where it would basically text him a, uh, a, a key to use in addition. Um, and what the attacker did is they were able to clone uh, the SIM on, on his device. They were able to get that um, the MFA key uh, just as though they had his cell phone, um, and then they logged in and sold all of his Bitcoin. It was millions of dollars Jeez. of Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, Margaret has a, has a great point here. Uh, she's talking about the issue with biometrics on mass consumer devices is this, this threshold not to frustrate end users. Um, and that really is. So um, if you do any studying or if you like did your CISSP, um, they talk about basically this kind of, um, uh, they, it's a, a graph that basically shows two lines uh, that are in intersecting lines and going in opposite directions. And the idea is that there's a certain level of, um, of tolerance in terms of uh, whether or not we want uh, a, a, like when I stick my thumb down on something, does it have to be perfect or can it be a little bit off, right? Um, and so the more and more close I get to it needs to be perfect, uh, the less and less it gets away from the user going, but I just touched my thumb to it and it didn't let me in, right? And so we definitely see that um, with respect to uh, the biometrics, especially, um, there's this this level of tolerance that we we need to hit, where it's easy enough for the user to authenticate, but it's not going to authenticate the wrong people. Yeah, there, there's like there's like a line here, like most secure right here, and then least amount of friction right here. There's yeah. that line there, and I I believe, and I'm, I'm, I think it kind of holds true. You can correct me here. I believe the majority of people they're over here, less friction. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, most people out there are looking for, you know, they, they I think they want security. Uh, I think they hear about hacks and things like that. And they, they would rather have their stuff be safe than stolen. Right. Right. But I think that they're only willing to accept a very minimal amount of, uh, of um, friction, you know, of friction. Yeah. That, that's a great way to put it. Um, and it was interesting. I, I was, uh, I, I pulled my, my workplace environment. I was like, um, would you rather have a, um, a longer uh, period to change your password? Let's say we, we make it, you have to change your password once every year. But in order to do that, I apply it multi-factor authentication to everything. Um, or would you rather have a shorter period of, of uh, having to change your password? Let's say, you know, 90 days or maybe even something like 30 days, um, but no multi-factor authentication. And the vast majority was like, I would rather have the, have to change my password more frequently than have to deal with multi-factor authentication. Yeah, it's, it's easier. Yeah. August, 2019 exclamation mark, September, 2019 exclamation <laughs> mark. 
October right. 2019 exclamation mark. Yeah, there, there are some patterns out there that, that people tend to use. Um, and when they fall into those patterns, it's it, exactly every time I have to change my password, yeah, I just change the month that I'm changing the password in. No big deal, right? Change the year. Yeah. So, um, so Jesus, Jesus has a question from us. Jesus is a, a, a connection of mine. He's with uh, Alert Logic. I think you might be familiar with that company. Um, they do uh, manage them. Uh, he says, question for Josh, what are your thoughts on DOH when it pertains to security? And I don't know what DOH is. Maybe you do, Josh. Yeah, you know, I, I read that too, and I was like, what is DOH? I, I, I was like, Department of Homeland? Well, I, was, I, I, was, I, I saw that at first, and I, I, like, I immediately thought DOD, because it's kind yeah. of what it looks like. Um, but Jesus, well, what, is, what is the H, or what's the whole thing? What, what is DOH? Is it Homer Simpson? Don't. <laughs> so, so yeah, um, if you can clarify that for us, Jesus, that'd be great. Um, so, and I think we missed, did we miss, uh, Margaret? She's okay. No, we got that. Okay. You already addressed that. Yeah. So yeah. Um, if you had to rank multi-factor authentication, then like most secure, um, well, let me back up. Uh, I think for me, like, uh, it was beneficial for me getting into cryptocurrency because it like forced me to like look at security at a whole different perspective when I did like a few years back. Um, cause it was like on a per, you made it a, you made it a personal level, right? So using, so if, uh, I prefer the, uh, multi-factor apps that's not available on every platform yet, but more platforms are allowing it. And then there's even like this hardware key, like you said, it's all about what you have, right? This hardware key called like a UB key, I think is what this one's mm -hmm. called. And that would be something you have to actually like plug in, like talk about the most amount of friction possible. If you don't have that thing attached to your keys, or if you lose your keys, you're not getting in anywhere. So, I mean, I mean, how, how do you feel about it? there? Like you said, there's a good middle ground, but how do you feel about all the, all those tools? And what do you think? Is, what do you think they're going to try to do next? I, I think as with most uh, things having to do with security, um, your level of effort is should be proportional to uh the data that you're protecting um and what i mean by that is like take your cryptocurrency right let's mm -hmm. let's say you have you know you bought some some bitcoin you've got like 0.1 bitcoin worth you know uh what well, that is like 60 bucks or something like that right whatever it is um point one, feel, point one point one's like a thousand bucks now is it a thousand bucks I, yeah okay <laughs> That's um, I, I'm not doing doing the math on the fly right now, but let, that's all let, good. That's let, all good. Let, let, let's say you do that. Yeah, I guess it's about ten thousand dollars a coin. So, um, but in any case, so let, let's say you've got that, right? Um, is that something that's worth protecting? Is that something that you want to put multi-factor authentication on? Probably. Um, but but let's say it, it's something where I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's something else where it's not a big deal. Right. If it's a, a public white paper or, you know, the ability to download a file, whatever the case may be, maybe that's not something that's worth that level of protection. And I think that's kind of up to the uh, the user or the system administrator, depending on the situation, um, to figure that out. Right. And so, you know, I think that there's varying levels of like the, the complexity. Um, me personally, like, um, you know, if I use like a cloud security or a cloud platform um, and I have some credentials that give access to everything in that, that cloud platform, 
effectively root credentials. That's probably something that I'm going to protect with a, a physical token, like a YubiKey is a great example. Um, that is something where if a hacker were able to get into that, if they tried a SMS clone attack or you know something like that, um, I'd be in a really bad place. And me, especially being a security practitioner, you know that's something that I want to stop. So you know, I'll take a, a key and I will take a physical token and I'll lock that away in a safe somewhere um, because I don't need that account all the time. I only need it under certain circumstances. So it, I, I will go to the, the higher level of security for something like that, absolutely. Yeah, no, um, thanks, thanks for that. And before we answer Jesus' question real quick, uh, I'm gonna try this again. Hopefully we get more participation here. But um, a question for you guys. Do you use a personal VPN when you're on a public Wi-Fi network? Um, please, please let us know. I just want to just want to poll the audience. We have no other way to do this right now on LinkedIn except for asking you to manually type it. So if you want to just type letter V, the lazy way to do it here, just type letter V, and we'll know that you use one. We're going to talk about that next in a second here. But um, let's go back to uh, Jesus's question. He clarified uh, to DNS over HTTPS. Yeah. So. Um, DNSSEC is an awesome technology. I've been uh, running a DNSSEC client on my laptop for a couple of years at least. Um, the whole idea is basically your standard DNS query uh, is sent in clear text. It's basically going to go out over the provider and it's going to say, hey, I want to go to simplerisk.com. And then the, the uh, DNS provider is going to come back with, well, here's the IP address that corresponds to that. Um, because that goes out over clear text, there's a few things that could happen. One, it could be intercepted over the network so people know where you're trying to browse to. Um, and two, it could potentially be tampered with. So somebody could basically redirect you to another site. Um, and in my opinion, neither of those is really a, a good option. Um, and so for me, uh, I will basically use DNSSEC in order to route all my DNS queries um, over that uh, secure channel. Uh, so the end result is I get the data back, um, but nobody can sniff it or tamper with it in the middle. Um, and that's really the, the major benefit of DNSSEC. Now, you know, going back to the question that you just asked, if you're using a VPN um, and uh, caveat, your VPN routes all traffic uh, over that network instead of sending some data out through the internet, um, you should be protected against that kind of attack. Because basically what you're doing is you're routing all of your traffic, including DNS, through an already encrypted tunnel, hopefully back to a source that you trust to do the DNS lookups. Um, if you don't do that, or if you use a VPN that has uh, split tunneling enabled, um, then DNSSEC is absolutely a, a good thing to have. Yeah, no, ex excellent. Um, it, is there any other way you could simplify that even further? Uh, simplify it even further. Um, Let's see. Uh, a there, of, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack there, but if you could, if you could simplify that even further. Yeah, uh, a lot of companies offer up VPN services uh, as, just as part of being an employee for remote access. Right, right. Um, if client, your company, client VPN. Yeah, yeah. If your company offers up a VPN service, it would probably be worthwhile asking the question, uh, does this VPN have split tunneling enabled? And if the answer is yes, it does have split tunneling enabled, then you should realize that your traffic is safe if it's going to the corporate network. All of your personal stuff is not. And that's probably the point where you should pursue some sort of a, a personal VPN option for when you're not. 
because ah, yeah. they're only protecting their data. They're not protecting your data. So when you, so when you're on the corporate VPN, if you have multiple profiles on your devices, when you're on the corporate VPN, stick to corporate stuff. If you have the split tunneling enabled, right? If not, yeah. then, then you're probably good because everything's going through. Um, yeah. But if you, if you do, don't log into your bank if you're you know if at a at an airport. Um, but do your corporate stuff. Switch. You got to unfortunately you got to switch VPNs to your personal if you want to log into your bank and stuff. Yeah. So so split uh, split tunneling basically says. Um, this IP range or data destined for these services will go over the VPN and anything not goes out over the regular internet connection. It's literally a split tunnel where there's a tunnel to corporate and then there's a tunnel out over the internet. Uh, if you disable split tunneling, which is usually an option that the VPN administrator has, that says everything goes through the same tunnel, which can be a burden on the company because now your personal traffic is routing through um, the company connection. So they're paying for your bandwidth. Got it, got it. Uh, and in other news, um, our audience is in a little bit of trouble. Only three out of 54 people are using a personal VPN. Thank you, <laughs> Margaret, Jesus, and Tony. Man, the rest of you guys, I, I, I hope I hope you uh, are safe out there on public Wi-Fi. I mean, for the most part, public Wi-Fi, like, like Starbucks is... is they 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 block crosstalk now, but still like there's. Um, I saw a video the other day. Um, use, the guy using a Raspberry Pi, right? Just a Raspberry, this little pocket-sized computer, gets in there and he he just spoofs the network um, to like create the same SSID. So it says uh, Google Starbucks, and because he's sitting right next to you, his the signal from that is stronger than the Wi-Fi access point wherever it is in the ceiling because it's right next to you. And your phone and your device is going to constantly look for the strongest signal, right? So yeah. it'll find that guy's device, and then he might still let you go to Starbucks.com or BankofAmerica.com, but he's watching everything you're doing because you don't have a VPN. Yep. That that's what like that's what that's what uh, I don't think most of us understand entirely is that it's not like you're gonna you, it's not like you would know the difference. You wouldn't. There's no way to know that unless you're constantly like in the code. Right. That's right. Any any more additional tips or, or thoughts on that? Um, you know, I think other than the VPN, uh, your browser, making sure that you're going to HTTPS websites, making sure that the lock is there, um, or you know, even like age-old advice, right? If it's not a connection that you own that you feel entirely comfortable with, don't use it. Um, you know, it's one of those things where like. Uh, Sometimes we, we get what we ask for. And if you're like accessing your banking website over a Starbucks connection, like maybe you should make some better choices in your life. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, so, I did, I did want ahead. to bring up, so I, I assume we got some technical people out here. Um, if you uh, type into Google, uh, how to make your own free VPN using Amazon Web Services, um, there's actually kind of a, a cool thing out there where somebody has written, I think multiple people have written about um, AWS offers what they call a free tier. And that free tier includes um, an AWS EC2 host. Uh, and these are basically instructions that walk you through the process of, of installing uh, something called OpenVPN, uh, which is an open source tool on that AWS free tier. So um, if your company doesn't give you VPN, if you're like, man, what's this you know, stuff they're talking about? I want to play with that. And you don't want to pay for one. Um, 
that is actually a pretty cool article that kind of walks you through the process of setting up your own VPN. That's really cool. What do you, what do you think the uh, scale of one to 10, the technical aptitude there? Um, you know, it's actually pretty easy. They've got some nice like graphics of how to do it. And you can just, you can just follow tools. along step one, step two. If you can read directions, you can probably yeah. do it. Yeah, I mean, if, if you can follow directions, I mean, like what you're doing from a technical perspective is probably, you know, it's pretty technical. It's like an eight maybe, um, but they make it super easy to follow. They've got video that kind of walks you through and, you know, it, it, it's actually pretty, pretty simple to do. Nice, nice. Um, and do you have a do you have the link to that that we can throw in the in the comments here? Uh, I can. Yeah, let me see if I can if I can throw it in there for you. Because I, I was also going to ask you for uh, what's one resource uh, that you can't live without. Probably not that one, but that's a good one to share too. <laughs> but what what's one resource that you couldn't live without? Technical um, resource. Man. Uh, or, or a tool or application a tool. Um. I really like my firewall, to be honest with you. I, I've got, you know, wife and kids, and um, I use a, a next-gen firewall uh, at the house in order to kind of separate out traffic. I've got different Wi-Fi networks for the kids, for IoT devices, for my stuff. Um, and so it, it ends up kind of being a, a good way to um, control devices that connect to my network. Uh, when the kids are misbehaving, they're not doing their homework. I can turn off their Wi-Fi without turning off mine. Um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of kind of uh, uh, purposes to doing that. And so my wife gets a little bit mad at me when I turn it off and then forget that I turn it off and leave the house. Uh, <laughs> but uh, other than that, it, it's worked out pretty well for us. Nice. And and I th I thought up a random question just now. Uh, it's a would you rather question. Um, would you rather have ten? Um, new people to cybersecurity on your team or 10 seasoned tools? You can't have both. You can have one or the uh, other. That's a great question. Um, and that number is arbitrary, so whatever. But the, <laughs> the 10, 10 people or 10 tools? 10 seasoned tools, 10 rookie cybersecurity guys. Oh, we're going, we're going with rookies. All right. <clears throat> I, would, I would probably take the tools in that scenario. Um, for me, when I'm hiring somebody, I want to hire somebody who has passion. And if those rookies have a ton of passion, uh, I can teach them anything, right? Um, if they're just people who are like, Hey, you know, this, I heard this field pays really well. Uh, so I'm in it, right? Um, I'm going to spend way more time trying to bring them up to speed than I am just creating, you know, entering data into a tool to make it happen. Um, but I, I think the reality is, is, is it's probably a mix of both. It's probably somewhere in the middle uh, that we really need to be. Um, and so, you know, maybe it's let's do five tools and five uh, security people. You know, maybe I'll, I'll sacrifice. Uh, maybe, maybe it's five tools and two seasoned people instead of five rookies. Um, yeah, I don't know what exactly that that looks like, uh, but I, I think that's probably where I would end up going with it. Nice. Nice. Well, I love that. Uh, and then just, uh, wrapping up, man, um, uh, got a few, few minutes left. If any, any last minute questions, um, now or never, we'll come back to the feed later. Um, but last minute questions, here's your chance for Q and a, but just, uh, wrapping up, I mean, what are your, what are your final thoughts? Um, just words of, uh, advice for people out there. Um, 
You know, I, I think that that cyber school cybersecurity is a really cool industry. Uh, I think that if you've ever thought about doing it and, and just kind of uh, maybe you didn't think that was a good fit or you didn't have experience or whatever, I've known plenty of people who had zero experience who made it work. Um, maybe it takes a little bit of effort, right? You may have to go get a cert or maybe you have to take a junior job in order to, to get your feet wet. Um, but there's there's tons of things to do in cybersecurity and there is a huge, huge gap. If you're a parent, highly recommend uh, pushing your kids in that direction. Um, I've done a couple presentations for some of the high schools around here talking about cybersecurity and the career shortage and all that stuff, um, trying to get more uh, students interested in it. Um, it it's huge. Uh, from a personal standpoint, I think cybersecurity matters. I think it's something that we should all be very, very concerned about. Um, I think the fact that we see all these breaches happen, um, you know, take like Equifax as an example, all of our, our personal data uh, was basically compromised. Your social security number, your address, your phone number, the accounts that you have. And uh, to be honest, it kind of got brushed under the rug. I know. We should all, we should all be way more concerned about that than I think we were, right? It's like, right. hey, we'll, we'll give you free credit for a year. Like, how does that help that my social security number is now out there and I can't change it? Yeah, um, I, I was one that was affected. So, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. You know, I, I think that that as individuals, as you know, we should be way more concerned about the impact of cybersecurity on our daily life than I think we are. You know, the fact that some of these companies that have had such significant breaches are still in business. That's a little bit concerning, right? Right. Um, and then, you know, just from the, the business perspective, uh, if you're in the, the, the information security field, or even if you're not, um, risk management is, is huge. It, it really is an enabler. It helps you to prioritize. Um, it helps you to understand uh, the things that you should be investing money and time into and the things that, you know, maybe can sit a little bit longer. Um, and so, you know, I guess that's like four things, but it's it spread out just based on where you sit in, in life. Cool, man. I, I love it. Uh, so, dude, thanks thanks so much again for your time today. I think this was a very valuable chat. Um, if you just tuned in right now, the replay will be available. We'll slice it and dice it. There's a few gold nuggets right at the 1230 mark, I believe, somewhere around there. Um, definitely check out this Create Your Own VPN on for free. That's really cool. Tony, thank you for putting that link out there, my man. Really appreciate that. Um, Daryl, Jesus, Margaret, Zara, uh thank you guys for tuning in today really appreciate it um all right guys well see you guys next wednesday for another show uh and make sure you connect with josh sokol uh he is uh, uh slash josh sokol on linkedin his little call sign is right here so go f be sure to find him and connect with him thanks so much for, for watching guys take care